This episode of Recovery is Possible is brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health, where there are endless possibilities for recovery. Retreat provides quality care at their leading mental health and substance use treatment centers, which are designed to offer patients truly personalized and comprehensive programs that are tailored to their needs. Retreat Substance Use and Mental Health Treatment Centers in Palm Beach County, Florida, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and New Haven, Connecticut do everything in their power to ensure that patients receive the highest quality treatment in a safe and comfortable setting. So reach out today at RetreatBehavioralHealth.com or call at 855-802-6600 for more information. everybody, this is Mike Van Meter and welcome to Recovery is Possible. And, you know, I have had the pleasure of having a lot of guests on this program and today is one of those days. I'm going to have John Monahan joining me and John um, has been doing a lot of work in the mental health and resilience area and he's going to talk about that a little bit and talk a little bit about his story. And if you've not checked out his material, and we'll put a link to some of his material here in this podcast, um, check it out. I was earlier today looking at a TEDx video from Portsmouth where he was doing a, a presentation and it was I was just really touched by it and really talking about the importance of, of mental health. And in fact, um, he made a statement at the end of the the video that I thought was very appropriate. In fact, I was inspired to write it down and that was, don't be afraid to ask for help. It's the most courageous thing that you can do. And that is so true. And there's so many of you out there that are hurting, um, maybe struggling with addiction, mental health issues. And um, you just, the reason why you're not getting help is because of maybe shame, stigma, a lot of different reasons. And he'll talk about that. And uh, we were connected through a former co-worker of mine at the FBI Academy when I was teaching at the National Academy there, teaching police executives. And uh, we both retired, and uh, my, my former co-worker was at a conference where he met John and suggested that we connected, and we did, and I'm glad that we did. And so with that, I want to bring John to the program. Thanks for coming on today, John. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself and the, the work that you do and sort of the, you've had kind of a twist and turning uh, journey in your career, and that's which is kind of interesting. So share that with us. Sure. Yeah, I didn't start uh, police work till I was about 28 years old. I, uh, I, <clears throat> I grew up on Cape Cod down, uh, down in Massachusetts or on the ocean and uh, New England. And so, so I went to college, you know, and I was, I was a furniture maker and a, a forestry guy, you know, I, cut a lot of trees and had a long beard. And, and then I also got married and had a kid and, <laughs> and I was doing martial arts and thinking, man, I need a, I need a steady paycheck and some medical benefits. And I'd always kind of had a heart for service. And that's how I got into police work. I, I was literally reading the paper one day and I thought, you know, I could probably do that. Um, you know, some people want to be cops their whole lives. And for me, it was literally an ad in the paper. I walked in and I think they said, how long have you wanted to be a cop? I'm like, I don't know how long the had been in the paper and the rest was written, man. I, I from there, you know, I, off to the police academy, I went and twenty some odd years there, chief retiring and and all that. So that was a, a pretty circuitous, if I can put it that way, uh, career as as a police officer, and then eventually became a, a police chief. And tell us a bit about how you got into the work that you're doing now, and maybe describe that a little bit. 
Yeah, sure. I, um, you know, I, I started uh, as a, uh, a patrolman, um, in Lebanon, New Hampshire, it was a small, small little town. And eventually, um, after about three little, uh, three years doing that, I, I became a state trooper and I worked in a rural area, uh, where there were nine towns and only two police departments. I was, I was a, what you call a residential or rural trooper. So I was the cop for seven towns. Uh, and, and, um, my patrol partner, a guy just to the South of me was named Jamie and he and I were pretty good friends. Um, you know, when we would go on canine calls, he was a canine guy. I would be a shotgunner, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we were, we were quite close. And, and after I left state police, I became a, a you know, police chief in a, a small town called Franconia. Um, and, and I just happened to have been reading this book called Resilience by this author, Eric Greitens. He's a, uh, a retired Navy SEAL. Um, and he had written this book about a friend of his who, who had uh, suffered pretty severe post-traumatic stress disorder and coincidentally was also um, an alcoholic. And uh, my friend Jamie um, was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, and he, he was really struggling. And, and of course, you know, uh, the stigma with policing or any first responder, um, organization is, is oftentimes, you know, these things seen as moral failings of some sort, you know, that we, uh, that if we were just stronger, better people, we wouldn't have issues like post-traumatic stress, or we wouldn't have issues like substance use disorders or alcoholism or, or mental health issues, whatever they may be. Um, and so he was really reaching out, uh, and, and I reached back and I, and I kind of battle buddied it out with him with my limited knowledge at that point. And that's really kind of what started me on my journey through learning about mental health and eventually, um, you know, understanding resilience in a much deeper way as well as post-traumatic growth uh, work. Yeah. And that's, that is so important because, you know, you're talking about the field that we are in, which is, you know, law enforcement or military, you know, I'm a military guy in in law enforcement and getting help in, in any form or fashion has been historically something that just was not done. You, you. This is a world where that's perceived as weakness. And when you look at AA, for, for, so for the 12-step people that are out there, when you look at step one of AA, I'm powerless over alcohol, my life's become unmanageable. That word powerlessness is not in our vocabulary. And which is okay when you're a police officer or if you're in the military, that's a, a really good uh, trait to have. But when, when you're an addict and alcohol fits into that category, it's really a death sentence because you, you know, you're not going to go to your organization and say that you need help because people look at you as, as being weak. Now I will say that that has been changing for the better over the years, but it's not, it's, we're certainly not there yet now. And we certainly weren't there back uh, when I got into recovery, and, and I'm assuming that was the same with you. But somewhere, something happened with you where you decided, okay, this this is the field that I'm going to go into. This is the work I'm going to do, because that's what happened to me. There, there was something that led me to the work that I'm doing now, because I did not 30 years ago say to myself, I'm going to become a, a drug and alcohol therapist. <laughs> that, that was not on in the plan, and there's a long convoluted story as to how that happened, and, and it, it sounds like something similar happen with you because this is the work that you do now and so how do we get from being a cop doing what you're doing to doing what you're doing now 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, I will say that sort of the reoccurring theme, whether it's uh, the recovery world or, um, you know, or post-traumatic growth world, it, or, or even uh, sort of the, the building blocks of resilience is being of service, you know, uh, and giving back. And so so I think that's eventually, eventually how I got to where I got. And, and sort of to tell you the the story of my own recovery, um, I, I really didn't start drinking till, you know, a, a year or two into my career. So I was in my, you know, maybe 30 or something like that. I'd have a beer or two once in a while. Um, and, and I had, uh, I mean, this horrific story, uh, you know, about dealing with this call. And I, I was like, God, what'd you do? You know, a week off, but a couple weeks off, to see a therapist thinking of all the healthy options because <laughs> now i drank a six pack so i could fall asleep and unfortunately uh you know as as a lot of young cops do i was like well i guess that's the way we do it here you know and um and i and i'll, I'll never forget i and i even mentioned in this ted talk you know the the call was it, it, it was a young uh, an infant really that had been sexually assaulted and i, and I had a little daughter and and um and I, and so I went on the call, it was a midnight shift and I got off and that morning I bought a six pack of beer and I went home and I watched her sleep in her crib and I drank beer and I was just, just devastated by this call, you know, and I, I didn't know it at the time, um, you know, but one definition of trauma is uh, a disruption to our core values, uh, to the degree that our coping mechanisms are overwhelmed. And what I didn't realize at that point was that that was starting to happen for me, you know, that, that these sort of small, small or large incidents of our career, when they, when they hit home like that, you know, for lack of a better term, I started using alcohol as a bit of a, you know, they, they say it's fun and then problems and then it's just problem i went from a beer or two here and there to uh you know to, I, I remember telling my aunt i said god this I, I like beer but it gives me a hangover i can't stand the feeling she goes oh try single malt scotch and sure enough what a what a more efficient delivery system that turned out to be without without as much of a hangover so uh so i became a whiskey drinker <laughs> you know and um and, and that's what I did. You know, I, I would work, uh, I, and I would come home and I would exercise and I, and then I, at five o'clock, you know, cause this is the, the things that we tell ourselves, oh, I'm not an alcoholic if you drink at five, you know, and so <laughs> at five o'clock it was cocktail hour. And so, uh, so I did that for a very long time, you know, and that was sort of my, my way of dealing with things was just, uh, I was going to give myself relief, you know, so I was working shift work. And so five o'clock came at various times a day, uh, depending on, on what shift I was working. But, uh, you know, I, there was, uh, there was always drinking involved and, um, you know, and that, and that just progressed over time. And, uh, so interestingly, you know, when I was, Jamie, I I always I heard this guy give a talk at a AA meeting the other day, and he said, you know, I went from step one to step twelve, and I skipped everything in between <laughs> until <laughs> until it got sobriety got too painful for me, and I, and I realized I had to do the middle part, and and I think that was true for me, you know, when he was when he was hurting and reaching out for help, I I was hurting and didn't know quite how to help myself. Um, I was dealing with that stigma. I was a police chief at the time, and I knew I had a problem back when I was a trooper too, but. I just, you know, I, I wasn't in a culture where if you did that, like your career was over, you know, if anybody knew you were seen as, as somebody couldn't handle your booze or whatever it might be by, by people who are drinking just as much as you are, you know, um, 
and and so uh, you know i went from uh from education i guess you know i realizing that there there's problems and and post-traumatic growth kind of has these different aspects to it and the first step you know in post-traumatic growth is is education uh and the final part is being of service and so i for my trajectory in post-traumatic growth just like some people in sobriety i went from step one to, to you know step 12 uh and i skipped the middle part so for me even though I was helping my friend, I, um, I was still drinking, you know, and, and as a police chief, I, I did that for quite some time. Um, and I, I'll tell you this, I, I you know, I, I it made my marriage rough, you know, I ended up getting divorced and, um, you know, I, I had two kids, uh, I put a lot of strain on my relationship with my daughter and uh, my son and I always had a great relationship, um, you know, and, and he would come and stay with me. Uh, and, and I'll tell you this part. He, this is kind of a, a real pivotal moment for me. I, I was getting divorced and, and, you know, I was drinking a fair amount. And I, I so I, I describe my alcoholism like this, right? Like I had a list of problems, a, a whole list of problems. In the ass citizens, you know, dangerous calls I was going on. The only two things that weren't on that list were me and alcohol. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and so, so I had a list of problems, you know, and, and me and alcohol weren't on it. And, and, um, my son went on a trip once with the the rec uh, center in the town that I was working in, and uh, and he got assaulted on that trip, um, and that devastated me. When we talk about uh, the thing that um, you know that really gets you, like for me, that that was I didn't realize, but one of my really core 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 values because I grew up in a fairly um, neglectful household. For me, providing my kids. Uh, all the safety and security I never had was was absolutely sacred to my being, who I was, my identity, you know. And so, so for for all the tragedy, for all the the horrible things that I had seen on the road, you know, they they definitely you know did their part. They were definitely pebbles in my backpack. But um, but one man, that was like you know, forgive my expression, but that was a proverbial kick in the nuts. You know, I mean that that one hurt. Um, you know, and, and I would say that not that my drinking took off, but it felt it, it was like the one place I could kind of go for solstice, you know, and, um, boy, it, it, and, and, I the right thing. I, I, I helped him, um, I actually disclosed to him some things that had happened to me as a young man, you know, and allowed him to go get the help. And, and his therapist told me, you know, he's going to be all right. He's going to be all right. You know, and, um, I was just devastated by that. And he's actually doing great. He's a Marine right now. And, um, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine, you know, and, um, he, he's, he's done quite well for himself. He's a tough kid. He's a good kid. Uh, and I, I hope that he doesn't have, you know, the, the addiction gene like I do, but, uh, we talk about it. He gave me my two year, my two year medallion, you know, for, for getting sober. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but sort of how that plays into, uh, post-traumatic growth and recovery uh, for me at least is um, you know I, I, I left uh, the town I was working in as a police chief at that point because I just couldn't kind of in good conscience stay there after uh, you know kind of putting him in in their care the place that I had literally put my life on the line for for five and a half years um, you know I, I just I just had to get out of there so I ended up going to this other town and being the chief there um, and it was tough you know I, I had this uh, it was it was a bit of a dysfunctional police department um, 
and uh you know and i'm the chief and i'm thinking i'm gonna walk in there like my shit doesn't stink and everything's gonna be great uh and boy it wasn't i had a friend uh who used this expression he said you lost the locker room and i was like man i don't think i ever had the locker room in that place you know and and and, and it felt like a bit of a hockey fight from the day i walked in the door they, they had their idea of how things were going to be and i had mine and they did not they did not align well um, so, you know, I, uh, again, a list of problems, uh, and me and alcohol weren't on it, you know, and, and I kept drinking and drinking. Um, and that's when I, I really cracked, you know, I really cracked at one point while I was working there. And, um, and that's when I ended up going and seeing the therapist. I, I was like, I, I don't know what's happening to me, but I'm like literally having panic attacks. And, and she told me, she's like, it's chronic stress, you know, chronic stress, uh, from everything you've seen and she said you left your heart and your mind your feel your soul out on that field bud and you know you did the most courageous thing you could do and and you asked for help uh, i didn't ask for alcohol at that point though i just had asked for help like emotionally and psychologically yeah and what's what's interesting about that is how you, you just said that you asked for help but you didn't ask for for help with alcohol and I see that a lot with the patients that come in to see us now in the hospital. And I'll ask them, you know, why do you drink or why did you relapse? And they'll, they'll tell you, because my boss is a, a jerk. My wife left me. Uh, you know, I lost my job. I, I lost, you know, whatever. The, the, my, my dog died. A lot of different issues. And they'll, they'll always say that. But um, ironically, sitting in a detox unit in the hospital, very rarely do the patients say, I drink because I'm an alcoholic, right? And yeah. so in police work, in life, but, but you know, since we're talking specifically police work, the fact is there are police officers and agents that go through the same trauma that we do that don't drink. Now, we get, we get the impression right. that everybody in the department drinks, but they, the fact is not everybody does. It, but we, we go to um, drinking, and you mentioned something there, that genetic predisposition. You mentioned the genetics. Um, that That's definitely a big part of it. But um, it was kind of interesting that you initially said to your therapist that uh, you were struggling, but you did not mention alcohol. So I'm just kind of curious as to when did that come into the picture? And then when did the light go off and go, you know what? Uh, alcohol is not helping this. <laughs> so where yeah, was that transition? That's a, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I'll tell you this. Yeah, I heard it in a meeting once and this woman said the elevator gets off at every floor, you know, and, and rock bottom is when you decide to stop digging. And, uh, and so, so for me, you know, I, I heard the magic words, uh, you know, it's not, it sounds like chronic stress has gotten to you, not drinking chronic stress. And I was like, you know what, that's what it is. It's the chronic stress. And I, had, and I, had, you know, I, I was a good police chief. I was a good husband. I was a good dad. I was all those things. I was a very high functioning, uh, alcoholic for, or a classy one, as I like to call myself. So I, uh, you know, I, uh, that was sort of the, the thing I, and I was, I was a mess, you know, and I, I, and, re, and I think even in retrospect, if, if, uh, if I was sober, John, you know, back then, it still would have been a really, really hard place to work and a really hard career. Oh, sure. But sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, but definitely, um, 
you know, I, my grandfather was a, a terrible alcoholic and, and all my mother's brothers. And I, I wouldn't doubt my mom, but she, when she got pregnant with me, she just stopped drinking and never did again because I don't think she wanted to do to me what her family was like. So, so I definitely had the genes for it, you know? Um, and so, so really I retired and I was like, great, you know, now, because I had convinced myself I'm a problem drinker once all these problems went away. So would my parent in the, and literally a month later, the pandemic hit and, and I was Smith, New Hampshire, and uh, and and I was I was like, oh, I'll be damned! I'm drinking a little bit more and a little bit earlier, you know. But I was like, ah, I'm just celebrating. That's all. I'm tired, and I'm celebrating, you know. And it's all the things we talk to sort of justify our drinking. And um, you know, I, I did all sorts of shit. I was vegan. I meditated. I exercised. Like I did all the right stuff, except for uh, wrestle this one thing to the ground. And I, I often talk to people. I, I tell them I am a super well accomplished guy. Like I have black belts. I have a master's degree. I was a police chief. I've done triathlon. Drinking, I could not do, but I'll do it. And drinking was kicking my ass. And you know, I was out on a bike ride. I'm retired. I'm like living the, the life. And, uh, and I, and I coughed up some blood in it and it really scared me. And I was like, Oh Jesus. Uh, so I went to the ER, you know, and they're like, Oh, well, you know, you probably like swallowed a bug or something. I of course Google it. Like everybody does with like esophageal hemorrhaging. I'm like, Oh my God, my alcoholism's caught up to me. I'm willing to admit this to myself at this point. So they tell me, you know what? You're, you're, everything's fine. But coincidentally and oddly, sir, because you're a very healthy guy, uh, your liver and kidney labs are off. And I was like, I was like, yeah. but I knew exactly what the problem was. And I was, I wasn't willing to admit it to them. I admitted it to myself that day. I was like, I, I got to quit drinking. And I had no idea what to do. No idea what to do. I reached out to a friend of mine who was in um, the fellowship. You know, he, and uh, he didn't he never called me back. And uh, he's on my resentment list, the bastard. No, I'm just kidding. But he, uh, uh, so, but I, but if he hears I this podcast, because, you can, you can make amends for that. If he hears okay, this. Yeah. I will. Uh, so anyways, I am, um, I, 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 because it was uh, COVID, you know, there was zoom meetings everywhere. And so I went online, I, I figured out how to get myself to a meeting online. And I, I, you know, it took me about a week after that hospital visit to finally like put, put the bottle down. But I, uh, I went online and I found a meeting and the, you know, they told me this thing. It chokes me up to this day, and I hear it in meetings, but they said, you're the most important guy in the room. And I, I, I'm like, where in the hell on this earth can you go feeling about as ugly as you feel about yourself, admitting something that you have been holding in shame forever? Uh, and people are like, yeah, like literally clapping for you. Like, thank God you're here. You're in the right place. I mean, it was didn't feel like a beautiful thing at the time, but, you know, as I witness it as a sober man, it is the most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen, you know? And, um, you know, the fellowship for me has been, uh, just a godsend, you know? And so that was the day I surrendered. It was, it was June 10th, uh, 2021, mm. um, coming up on three years of sobriety uh, this year. Yeah. Thank you. And so, um, you know, and, and I gotta say it was the hardest dang thing I've ever done. You know, I mean, like I said, I, I can accomplish a whole lot, but I couldn't accomplish that by myself, you know? And I think we have this idea of like being the ruggedly independent guy and never asking for help and, you know, all that. And boy, alcohol is not really one of those things that, that you can like accomplish on your own. No. I mean, some people I suppose can white knuckle it, but man, I couldn't. And, um, 
it takes definitely a power greater than myself, you know, whatever that is for the person who needs the help, whether it's a, you know, a group, a group of drunks that's going to help you out or, or God or whatever deity you subscribe to. Um, you know, I, and, and for me, that actually has been a tremendous journey. You know, it, it reconnected me uh, to a spirituality that I had long since left uh, back back when I walked out of the doors of Catholic school as a teenager. You know, I I, uh, I was like enough of that. So, um, you know, it's really done wonders for my life. And so, uh, you know, I I I it was at that point that I I got a sponsor. And I was like, I'm in, I'm all in, what do I got to do? And, uh, you know, fortunately my sort of that dedication, uh, and, and determination and, and, uh, you know, attention to detail, all the good things about police work, uh, served me well, uh, getting sober because when my sponsor gave me an order or a suggestion as they call them, uh, I followed it, you know, and, uh, uh, to the letter and, uh, and I went through the step process and, and, and it's been quite, uh, transformative for me. I, I'd been to therapy before and all that but you know doing my four step and writing out my resentments and and really looking at the patterns of myself uh, was so informative in no other way that i'd ever experienced you know and um being able to sort of put that stuff behind me and say i am done with this i see my part in it uh, and now i have a path forward you know to have to make amends for it and um it's really just changed my life tremendously and you know i i I say this to be, you know, like I was a good police chief. I was a good dad, but I am definitely like the best version of myself now that I, that I've ever been even before drinking, you know, I mean, um, you know, the, the, the me that was predisposed to drinking, uh, it's not me anymore. I mean, yeah, sure. I, I know if I pick up, I'm, I'm on a, a, a Nantucket sleigh ride that is not, is not in my control. So, so I stay away, but, um, I didn't have these tools, you know, I, uh, I think the reason I did drink is cause I was missing some tools able to show about ways I couldn't before, you know, which really kind of gets into that post-traumatic growth work that I do now, you know. So how did you get into that? Uh, these are really good points. So that your your focus is the post-traumatic growth. And yeah. maybe describe how um, these two go hand in hand, obviously, because, um, you know, I have, if you, you ever hear me speak in public, I always talk about causes and conditions, right? The condition is we have that pre uh, genetic predisposition that you mentioned. Um, but that but we we want to check out you know addiction is isolation recovery is community and there's something you know we have things that happen in our lives that cause us to to want to check out and not be present and be numb i mean after all if i was to go out and drink tonight or if you were to go out and drink either one of us um it's usually not going to be because something great happened in your life it's going to be because something bad happened you know maybe um, there's a death in in your life, or it is something traumatic happens in your life today, and you're going to say, "Okay, well, a drink sounds like a good idea," and then that, uh, and then we're on the roller coaster again. And so it seems like you have a real interest in connecting that um, trauma to this, yeah. and and it seems like your your focus right now is is the trauma work. So how do we lead in that direction? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, you know, I mean, I, I grew up, um, you know, kind of having a, in many ways sort of fending to my, for myself, uh, you know, my, my folks had divorced and, um, you know, my mom ended up going to work. So my sister and I were left alone to our own devices. I was the older of the two of us, you know, so I kind of had this, um, 
screw it, I'll do it myself attitude my whole life, you know, and, um, and, and that didn't serve me well. Like you said, you know, that isolation versus connection, you know, kind of kept me from being able to ask for help and relying on others and all that stuff. It keeps us from uh, being addicted to stuff. And so, um, you know, the post-traumatic growth work, I, I mentioned my friend Jamie earlier and resilience, you know, is essentially made up of, of several things, you know, but, um, you know, having a purpose and, and, um, mastery over some stuff, self, self, uh, reflectability, you know, and, and, um, having a group of people you care about, you know, and I, and I certainly wanted to help him, but, but I wasn't really kind of willing to take a deep look at myself. And it wasn't until I, I got into recovery that, and I went through that four step that I really took a good look at myself. And interestingly, um, post-traumatic growth, you know, so my, my early work in, in sort of the mental health space for first responders was really about break the stigma go get help. You know, if resilience is made of those things, make sure you're practicing them in some way in your life, you know, and that's about all I knew. Um, and then I, I happened to be at this conference and I saw, um, the organization is called Boulder Crest. They're they're out of Bluemont, Virginia. Um, it's this, the, these two these two guys, Ken Falk and I'm, I'll, Josh. Uh, his last name because I don't have the book in front of me, but um, uh, and I believe started. He's a retired Navy guy, uh, and so and and so I saw this presentation. I was like, oh my lord! I had already given the TED talk. I knew about this thing called post traumatic growth, but I didn't know what it was. There, these are guys running workshops where there's a process that you can go through, and I was like, "Holy shit! Sign me up! What do I got to do? Well, you got to do it yourself first. And I was like, "All right, I'll do it." Yeah, I went to I went to a workshop in Miami. You know, it's essentially, uh, you know, the the process is like a five step process. It's education. You got to know it exists. Uh, relation, which is about, you know, what do you do? What are your wellness practices for your body, your mind, uh, your, you know. Um, because finances can be a tremendous strain. Uh, what, are, what kind of wellness practices do you have in there? Or what are unwellness practices that you have in there that are causing problems for you? You know, and who are like the three to five people you're hanging out with? And are they practicing those things? Or are they, are they causing trouble in your life? Uh, closure, part of post-traumatic growth, you know, and um, the, the lessons that I've learned. What are the, if I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, ha have uh, these pebbles in my backpack and I'm going to chip away at them through disclosure and the rubble falls away. Well, what are the gems that I'm going to take within the uh, sort of inform who I get to become? And then finally being of service, you know. Uh, so I, I, I went, I'm in this workshop, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I, I've done my step work. I'm sober, you know, I, I'm a professional kind of in the in the you know the resilience and mental health space and so i'm kind of half participating you know and they, and they show this um piece of pottery up on the and it's called kinsensugi i'm probably mispronouncing it i believe it's called kinsensugi it's this japanese pottery and what it is is when when pottery breaks they will put it back together uh using like gold or some precious metal um and the idea is that it actually came from a samurai who took his uh his teacup his favorite teacup and so he had this this goldsmith or a craftsman put it back together and and he believed it was more beautiful than it was first made um and so they show this cup and I'm like, oh, God. And so what happened 
is when I when my son um, graduated from Marine Corps boot camp, I gave him a piece of pottery like that, but nobody in the classroom knew. So they're like, who knows what this is? And uh, I raised my hand. Nobody else raises their hand. They're like, well, how do you know? And so I, so I begin my process of disclosure. And I man crying in this classroom <laughs> like i can't believe this is happening to me right now oh you know like tears are coming on you know uh if you know about uh you know hormone producing things that we do uh to help mitigate the stress hormones in our body you know it's a healthy thing that we do um and clearly you know i needed to do that and so so i talk about it i talk about you know this thing with my son and how devastating it was to me you know, and, um, you know, and, and, and at this point in my life, I am working on my amends, you know, and my, my, um, and I had made my amends to my son, you know, and I, and, and I, and I said to him, because when I was doing my resentment list, like the guys that did this to him, you know, they're on my resentment list. I'm trying to figure out like, what's my part in it. And, and when I make my amends to him, I, I'm like, you know, I don't, I'm sorry that I, I wasn't a better dad for you, you know, and I, I talk about this Kinsensugi thing and I'm thinking about it, I'm gnawing on this idea of post-traumatic growth and what is your new story because there's who you thought you were before bad shit happens and who do you become as a result of having gone through this hard thing. And it's not until then that I discover I'm a guy that gets to help people show up for the people they love in ways that I couldn't before. And that's sort of how I grow through post-traumatic growth. That's like who I become as a result of going through this process, you know? And, and so I'm like, all right, well, I, I am like dedicated to, to helping other people, you know, whether it be in sobriety or whether it be dealing with their own traumas and struggles, you know, um, to find a path through, to find a path through, you know, you don't have to numb out. You, you can, you can face and do hard things and come out on the other side and use that as the pivotal thing that makes you the new person who you are. So instead of having an, I got to list in life, you have an, I get to list in life, you know? So, so for me, I mean, that was uh, at least three or four years, you know, between the time the thing happened to my son, getting sober, uh, and going through this, this post-traumatic growth workshop. I mean, it's a period of time, but I, I kind of like come through it. I'm like, all right, I think I, I think I get it. You know, I think I get it. And, and so the idea that, that our, our trauma or difficulties, whatever you want to call it, is is really connected to our core values. And those are unique to all of us, which is why, like I always say, it's not the trauma Olympics. Nobody's getting a gold medal, you know, for having the worst of the most, because there's always the sergeant that wants to be like, hey, you know, you think that's bad, kid. Um, it's not about comparing. It's about being able to identify different circumstances, same feel. And so being able to meet people where they're at, and say, yeah, that, that sounds hard for you, you know, and let's, let's talk about it. Let's figure out a way for you to go through this and, and a path out so you can become who uh, you're meant to become because life is going to throw crap at us. And, um, and the choice we have is whether we're going to uh, be a victim of that or not, you know, and, uh, and we don't have to be, you know, life will be lifey, but, but we don't have to be a victim of it. So, so that was kind of my my path through all that, you know, and how I, I got to where I am now and and the work that I do now, you know, is really about about helping others and being of service, you know, but but you know, I didn't get to go from step one to twelve and I didn't get to go from step uh, education to service. I had to go through the middle. 
I do my own work. That's the thing that gives you credibility with others and, you know, can, and, and so, you know, I've got a, I've got a friend who's going through a hard time now and, and I'm like, Hey man, do you believe that I believe you're going to be okay? And he, Cause he doesn't have a lot of faith. And he's like, yeah, I, I believe you believe I'm going to be okay. I'm like, then borrow, borrow my belief in you for, for now until you can have your own, you know, you have to give people hope. Um, I think they find that, you know, the most people who, who die by suicide or something are, yeah, they've they've lost hope. They they've 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 given up. And and I always like to say that as long as you have that flicker, it's kind of like that fire, but that gas fireplace. As long as you have that pilot on, pilot light on, uh, you, you have a chance of starting that fire again. It's when it goes out that's when the end is near. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and it, it can be dark at times. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, life is not just uh, it's not cupcakes and rainbow uh, unicorn farts for me now. I mean, it still gets hard at times, but this too shall pass and, yeah it uh, doesn't, actually it's say, not perfect it's not perfect no 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 you know and i tell my wife i say it's like this for now not forever and and then when i'm going through a hard time she says it back to me i'm like nah, i hate that expression when it, it gets used on me i think other people like it but, but when she uses it back at me i'm like ah don't give me that stuff so uh so you know i'm i'm, I'm a worse enemy sometimes well, one of the things I like about um, what you you just said, and I and I tell the patients this a lot, you know, because somebody asked me <clears throat> just this week, as a matter of fact, at the hospital, you know, when when I got sober, you know, like what what's the, what was the process for you? What was the process? And I recovery seems to be this time when you do a lot of introspection. You you look at you know how you got to where you were knowing that there's also the genetic predisposition and that you cannot ever safely, ever safely drink again. And if you're out there struggling and, and you think that you're going to listen to this podcast or go to recovery uh, to manage your drinking or better learn to drink responsibility, the, the fact that you're in treatment, uh, I think you've already demonstrated that that's, that's, that's already been a settled question. Okay, it's not going to happen. Um, so how do we live a sober life and and that was what I had to face. And I th- you hit on something, and that was that you go and you reflect on um, the the good things in your life, the things that you do well. And and I want everybody that's out there listening to understand that each and every one of you has strengths. Okay, you do have strengths, and there's I'm assuming there are times in your life when things were going well, and you can tap back into that. And like you, John, um, I I was able to look back and you know what were the things I was doing. What was I doing? What was important to me when things were going well before alcohol started to take over? And I started to tap back into those things. And I know that for me, one of the things that became important to me was setting that example to other people and becoming that guy. Like, I, it was always important to me once I got sober to not be the guy that everybody looked at and said, oh, yeah, did you hear about what happened to him? Um, here he is, he's preaching this stuff, you know, he's talking about getting well, but then look what happened to him. See, that's just another guy, that's another hypocrite. And that that was important to me, that that would not happen. And so I, I kind of use that as fuel to, to you know, to push through uh, the addiction, you know, to get well, to start working the steps and, and getting better. And then uh, discipline. I When I found in my life, when I had a goal and I had a yeah. purpose, and I, I think, was striving, um, that helped. Oh, go I, ahead, John. Yeah, for sure. No, no, for sure. Purpose. You know, people essentially have three questions that they're trying to answer in their life. And that's who am I? What is my purpose? And where do I belong? You know, like, uh, you know, what's my identity, you know, and, and why am I here? And, and, and who are my people? 
you know um there are very basic needs you know but everybody's trying to trying to find that and i think you know the the issue of and they they say i didn't understand the terminology taking it on a moral issue at first you know i i would hear people say oh you're taking your addiction on a moral issue you're taking whatever on a moral issue mental health on a moral issue whatever it might be you know drinking gambling all those things and and i never understood it and then i realized uh you know later in my sobriety that I think what people were talking about is like, if you were just a better person, uh, you wouldn't have this problem. And that's just not the way that addiction works. It's just not the way that these things work. They, you know, they, they are diseases that we have that require a certain type of treatment and, uh, you know, and, and being of good character is, is not the solution to that. You know, it certainly helps, but, uh, but it's not going to get you over the finish line. And so, you know, for me learning that, that was a piece of surrender, you know, uh, for me, a piece of surrender was learning things. I had to practice my sobriety, just like I have to practice mental health. I have to practice physical fitness. I have to practice financial wellness and spiritual wellness. They are all practices. And I always tell people, you know, just because I worked out 10 years ago, doesn't make me physically fit today. Well, that's, that's true mentally, spiritually, you know, emotionally, financially, all those things. They're things I have to practice. And so sobriety is the same way too. Um, you know, I was just reflecting, I'm, I'm coming up on three years and I had this person the other day, like the first year is about physical sobriety. It's about putting down the drink and getting sober. The second year is like emotional sobriety. Now that the drink's down, uh, everything that you struggled with in life is still there. So how are you going to learn to navigate it emotionally? You know, and then the, the third year they said is about spiritual sobriety. Um, and that's about your relationship with your higher power. And I was thinking about that a lot today. Um, you know, because definitely year two, you know, I, I put the alcohol down and all my other character defects are, are like ready to ready to like grow to, to full size because they're like, well, you're still uncomfortable. So why don't you, you know, buy more stuff from Amazon? Why don't you, you know, go, go quit your job and, and start a new job somewhere else? Why don't you go do this? And, and so all the things that make me want to run away from the discomfort of myself, you know, start propping their real, real defects you know and uh and and like learning to navigate that and, and the thing that i learned through you know uh sponsorship and and through really listening to kind of the elders and, and people who've been there and walk the path is is the spiritual answer they only say it's a spiritual program um and so really leaning into, you know, if there is something greater than me that is going to help me, what is it? And how do I lean into that and practice that so that, because uh, that is the hole in my soul that I am trying to fill. And I tried to fill it with alcohol. I can try to fill it with all sorts of other things. And really, the, the, for me, it's the connection with my higher power. It's my connection with spirituality, you know, in whatever form that may be for a person. And, uh, and, and I've just found that to be true for me, you know. Know, and, and that you know, I haven't quite figured it all out yet, but but the more I lean into that, you know, the better things seem to get. And um, you know, I'll tell you this: I was teaching a class the other day, and um, there was a guy who was asking. We were going over the difference between guilt and shame, and uh, you know, and the difference really is is guilt bad I made a mistake uh, versus I am bad I am inner voice the negative inner voice is shame and uh and so so 
uh, I'm explaining this to him, and and then he starts talking about having difficulty with his uh, one of his children because you know he's getting divorced, and and I realize you know I, I haven't talked about my daughter, but when I divorced her mom, you know it really put a strain on my relationship with her, um, and I was trying to figure out my piece in it, you know, and uh, and I felt a lot of shame about that too. Like if I was just a better dad, right? If I was just a better dad, if I just did this, if I just did that, you know, I wouldn't have this problem. Um, and, and it, it actually clarified things for me and, and I can only thank sobriety for this sort of clarity and peace of mind to be able to work through some of the other difficulties in my life is that I, I maybe have some guilt around, you know, maybe not being the, getting divorced in the best way or maybe not handling everything in the best way. I was still drinking back then, you know, um, but I know in my heart that I'm literally the best version of her dad she has ever had now. And I can say that with a clear conscience, you know, that I am reliable for her. I'm reliable for myself. I'm trustworthy for her. I'm trustworthy for myself. Um, and that my living amends to her is to keep showing up in her life as, as the sober version of her dad. Um, you know, and so again, I was sort of taking my own shame around other issues on a moral issue. And, um, and really realizing that I don't need to do that. You know, I don't need, there's certain burdens I don't need to carry anymore. And I, I have to thank the process of getting sober for helping me do that. You know, um, it's really given me a life. They say a life like no other. I, I have clarity on things that used to baffle me. And, uh, and, and I am really eternally grateful for that. Yeah, it is so interesting that you went through a very similar process that I did. And you mentioned the first year physically just getting well, the second year uh, emotionally getting well, and then spiritually. And if those of you that listen to this podcast, if you go back a couple of years, it's very interesting, John. I almost got goosebumps when you said that because I was giving some observations that I'd had in recovery and I made a very similar observation and did an entire podcast on that. And I tell patients all the time that what you will notice is the people that get well tend to do the same things and notice the same things. And the people that tend not to get well in recovery also do the same things. And it's just a matter of, do you want to get well or are you not? Or who are you going to model yourselves after? And in that particular podcast, I expanded on it a little bit. There was a little bit more to some things I had looked at. And that was, I, I looked at it as a five-year cycle. And that is that first year becoming um, physically, you, gotta, you definitely do got to deal with the physical part of addiction. We've mm -hmm. done a lot of damage to our bodies and our brains. There's neuropathways that have changed. Um, the B series of vitamins not uh, absorbed, the minerals, um, GABA levels, serotonin, all this kind of stuff. And I'll bore you with that some other day, but um, that we got to work on that. That's the physical part. And then um, I looked at it like the, the second year, really controlling the emotions, the ups and downs. Part of that's post-acute withdrawal syndrome, but then also just kind of managing the emotions from all the damage that we've done in our life. Then the third year, and this was me, this is just me talking about, was the psychological part. What is it about mm -hmm. Mike that when stress happens, he wants to go drink, you know, psychologically mm -hmm. was driving me for that. Then, um, then the fourth year was, that's when I, I, I personally became very focused on the spirit, my spiritual development, my spiritual journey and figuring out like this whole business of high, higher power. Those of you that have been to AA meetings know that we talk about higher power 
quite a bit. Well, what does that mean? So for me, that's when I really tried to figure out what that meant for me. And then the fifth year was rec- not that you got it, but you recognize that cycle. But it's interesting that you came to the same observation point that I did. I, I find that very mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really don't know what the next few years are going to hold for me. I actually sponsor a guy that's got more time than me in the program, but he hadn't done the steps. And he, he asked me to, to take him through the step process. And he just got his five years uh, this this weekend. Um, and, and so I, I actually bought him a bag of marbles because they say you get your marbles back at five years. So I don't even have mine <laughs> back yet. That. But, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, and then they say at 10 years, you, you, you know how to play with them. And uh, so I'm a ways away from Kim having a, a complete set of marbles or even knowing what to do with them. But, um, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know exactly why, you know, I have a sponsor. His name's George. I've got another guy. I could say I need a sponsor and a half cause I'm, I'm that big of a, a pain in the ass, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I've got another guy, Dick, I talk to sometimes. Um, and you know, they're both, they've been, they're, they're sort of, uh, older gentlemen and, and they're, they've been sober for a long time, you know, and they're very sort of traditional in the way that they approach the program um and and they are just kind and patient and and you know they they're great for me to talk to they they give me you know wisdom that i didn't have i didn't have people like that in my life you know i didn't have Mm -hmm. people that i could talk to about these things and so so i'm getting advice that i always wish i'd had you know it's like it's like having two uh you know two two older grandpas or something that that you never really got to to spend time you know gleaning the wisdom of life from And, and these two just they happen to be sober as well. And so they've got a lot of really good reflections on their own struggles, people they've sponsored who've gone through similar things, you know? And so, uh, you know, I, I guess I could, you know, white knuckle it, try to, to beat myself up for answers, but I did that for 20 something years, you know, and it only got me, uh, more, more alcoholism and more frustration. So, so I, I was at the point where I was like, listen, I know what I did and that didn't work. So I'm absolutely willing to try somebody else's idea because mine's not going so well for me. And, um, so I do, I try to take their suggestions, you know, and, and, and I don't know quite how it unfolds, you know, it it just does. And, uh, and I know that if I'm struggling, but if I lean in and try a little harder, uh, that things get better, you know, and, um, and, and and I feel like I've got this like uh, generation of, of sort of sober people I came in with, you know, and I see the new ones come in underneath me and I see the older ones just ahead of me. And, uh, you know, I've got my little pack that I, that I work with and we're always checking in with each other. Like you, you struggling with this this year? And they're like, yeah, you know what? Funny you should mention that. I'm having a hard time with that too. And, and so, uh, you know, the nice thing about it is, you know, you're not alone. You know, I thought I was the only one in the world that, that had the issues that I had and keeping that inside again, you're only as sick as your secrets, you know, like if anybody knew this about me, you know, what would they think? That's that shame piece. And then for me, I walked into recovery. I said, this is the ugliest version of myself. People cheered <laughs> and I knew <laughs> I was in the right place, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is so true. And, and and I'll tell you what, everybody could, be, this is not even just about people that need to be in recovery for uh, drugs and alcohol. This is, the, what mm. we're talking about are, are concepts that would help anyone, even if you don't struggle with alcohol. I've often said, I think everybody needs to be in a 12-step program of some sort. I think the world would just be a better place if that were true. Absolutely. My friend Colette, her husband, uh, is a sober, he's, he's not one of us, and he, uh, 
And he says, I wish there was assholes anonymous for everybody else <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> because he, he can see the miracle of the program working in people's lives. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. uh, yeah. And there's lots of 12 step programs for different people, you know, whether, whether you have str struggles with food or, or, you know, sex or drugs or gambling. I mean, there, there's help out there for everybody, There is, um, you know, and, uh, and you just got to reach out and ask for it, you know, and, and that's, that's, I think the hardest step, you know, the hardest thing you ever have to do is, is walk through those doors. It's the longest mile, so to speak. You know, I saw a young woman get up and get her 24 hour chip. And I was like, man, that is the hardest thing I think I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and this one guy, he, in our meetings, he'll, he'll often say, you know, and you never have to get sober again. You never have to feel that way again, you know, and staying sober is a lot easier than getting sober. And Oh my gosh. Right. Is that not the truth? Yeah. 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 So he's right. And I, I, I listen to people, you know, uh, a woman, Sean, she was sharing a few weeks ago and she said, she, she talked about going out, you know, and, and using again, this is a number of years ago that she had, but her advice to everybody was, was you might think that, Oh, I'll just have this one drink. Oh, I'll just do this one thing this one time because, because I deserve it or because stuff is hard. It's like parts, not up to you. As soon as you pick that thing up, it is up to your disease when, when, and if you will get back. And, you know, I am absolutely willing to, to take her advice and listen to her suggestion and, and not have to go out and do some more research and development on my own. You know, I, I believe her and, uh, and I'm here to stay. So, so I, I feel, I feel really blessed that I have people who, you know, are willing to share their experience with me, their, their hope with me, their strength with me, uh, because I need it. That is so true. Wow. Just such powerful words of wisdom. You know, John, we, we, you and I could talk for hours. It seems like subject after subject. And we'll have to do that. We'll have to have you back on the program because it be just, there are so many layers to this um, to go through. And uh, I'm just so excited for you. And, and congratulations on your, your three years of sobriety. That's, yeah, thank you. Um, I know people are out there listening to saying, oh my gosh, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Well, we do it one day at a time. And we That's do right. that by doing all the things that you suggested, you know, and I, I, I think that um, um, yeah, yeah. it's not even so much that that you were doing the right things, you, you were willing to listen. And that's what I like about that. It was that willingness. That's one of the things in recovery is just having the willingness to to listen to others. And you mentioned the suggestions, right? You know, and just taking the suggestions. You know, these aren't directions. They're not orders from other people um, because you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything that we're no. saying. You know, they're just suggestions. But as I heard at a meeting one time, it's like, you know, when you jump out of an airplane, you don't have to put a parachute on. It's recommended. It's suggested that you put a parachute on, but you you do whatever you want to do. It's up to you. But uh, right. we really we really suggest that you put one on. <laughs> right. That's kind of how recovery is. So how could the listeners get hold of you? Um, kind of put out your social media and and um, because I like I say if you've not seen this Portsmouth TEDx talk with John, um, check it out. It was very 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 good. Um, but what what yeah, other things can they people look up on you? Sure. I'm just under Facebook uh, and, and uh, Instagram is John Monahan the third um, and uh, this one two three or Roman Nubles one two three. Uh, you can just Google John Monahan. It's with a G. That's the way they spell it in Ireland. Uh, you know TED Talk and I should I should come up uh, especially if you do police work. 
it'll pop up, you know? Um, so, so that's how you would find me. I, I do kind of have a, a side business that I, it's called deep blue compass. There's a website there. Uh, it, it doesn't have a lot on it, but, uh, that's one way that you could kind of snoop around and get to know something about me. And, um, you know, I, I guess the thing I didn't say, you know, one of the, the interesting things that's also a parallel with, with recovery and post-traumatic growth is, is when, when in post-traumatic growth, the thing that they notice that whether it be a prisoner of war, people who have gone through grief, you know, or people who've gone through a, a serious trauma, um, the, the five areas of growth they find in them are new possibilities, you know, in life that they didn't realize were possible before deeper, more meaningful relationships, uh, more strength. Like the, if I can go through that, I can go through anything, a greater appreciation for life and spiritual and existential changes. And I got to say, if, if there is not an absolute parallel between, uh, the process of, of recovering from whatever you might be recovering and, and how we can grow through hard things um you know i don't know what is so i i I found that to be true for me you know they they say when we share meetings you know what it was like what happened and what it's like now and and i gotta say for me now you know in addition to being able to teach about you know post-traumatic growth wellness uh resiliency factors for folks and helping other first responders be able to have healthier lives than maybe i was able to have you know, I, I, I gave a Ted talk and I, I actually do stand up comedy on the side Oh wow! and, uh, yeah, I know. And, uh, and so I had some, I, as I describe it, I had some shit to say. And, uh, and, and so my, my big, uh, sort of gold star on the refrigerator was the, the, the one bar in Franconia where I had been pulling uh, for their headliner comic. And so I got to do a 10 minute comedy sketch, uh, in the town that I used to be a police chief in, and I actually got paid to do it. Uh, so, so, you know, I, that is stuff I never, ever would have done if I hadn't gotten sober, you know? So in oh addition gosh, to just yeah. better relationships, like life really opens up in ways uh, that you never expected it to. So, um, you know, uh, as they say, uh, keep coming, you know, but, and wait for the miracle to happen. Oh, man, fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for for bringing this to us and uh, look forward to having you on the program again. So, uh, folks, with that, um, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier, this episode of Recovery is Possible is brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health, where there are endless possibilities for recovery. Retreat provides quality care, their leading mental health and substance use treatment centers, which are designed to offer patients truly personalized and comprehensive programs that are tailored to their needs. So Retreat Substance Use and Mental Health Treatment Centers in Palm Beach County, Florida, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and New Haven, Connecticut do everything in their power to ensure that patients receive the highest quality treatment in a safe and comfortable setting. So reach out today at RetreatPaveYourHealth.com or call at 855-802-6600 for more information. And John, thank you so much for coming on the program, and uh, we'll be talking with you soon. All right. I look forward to it. Take good care. You too. All right. All right. Bye-bye. You guys take care. Recovery is possible. You can do it. John's a living example of that. So one day at a time. We'll talk to you soon.